0: From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. Managing a diverse landscape such as golf courses will require enhanced precision in the future. Some of the early thinking about precise turf management started with Bob Caro at the University of Georgia and is now being continued by our guest today on Frankly Speaking, Professor Gerald Henry. Professor Henry got his bachelor's and master's at Rutgers University and PhD at North Carolina State with Fred Yelverton. I had a chance to speak with Professor Henry recently about his work on mapping soils and soil moisture, fairway playability, and sports field safety. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Gerald. Thanks for taking the time to join me. It has been such a joy in preparing for this conversation, looking over your work on sort of spatial variability, how soil moisture. Varies in space, uh, how that influences surface hardness. And while you'll apologize for working in sports turf, of course, it's much more important in sports turf from a safety perspective. A lot of our listeners, while we do have some sports turf managers, are golf course superintendents. So I'm going to ask you to spend some time talking a little bit about how you think this technology works both ways. But before I want to, we get into that. How did you develop interest in this? I mean, you worked for a weed scientist for your degree. Uh, how did you develop an interest in spatial stuff and, and mapping of areas from an ecological perspective?
1: Uh, well, during my Ph.D. at NC State with Fred Yelberton, uh, one of my larger projects was actually looking at the spatial distribution of a couple weeds in, actually in golf courses uh, in the rough and in the fairways. What we did then translates almost perfectly to what we're doing now, just really trying to figure out patterns that are occurring in the landscape, whether it's a sports field or a golf course. And then back then, it was trying to figure out, you know, the preferable environment of some of these weeds. Uh, So, you know, why does it occur here but not there? That's how I originally got involved in it. My minor for my PhD was actually in ecology, which, uh, you know, translated... Now into some of the work I'm doing in sports fields.
0: Golf courses are a complicated landscapes, so you've decided to go to square, flat, athletic fields.
1: No, actually, uh, I can't take a whole lot of credit for some of the work that we're doing because what what actually happened is I, I got to Georgia in 2012, and Bob Carroll was here right before he retired. He sort of threw me a bone and said, "Hey, you know, I, I can I kind of consider him the uh, the founding father, I guess, of site specific management." Huh. And he sort of uh, gave me the opportunity to, to take over some of the work that he was doing, and I just kind of took the torch and ran with it.
0: So he's on the Mount Rushmore of uh, turfgrass soil scientists, right? We'd put him on there with uh, Waddington and, and Enrique. You think those are the three big guns?
1: Uh, he's, he's definitely uh, one of them. I saw a, a statistic somewhere that said, He actually authored three or four of the most cited papers out of crop science in the history of the journal.
0: (laughs) How about that?
1: Which is pretty uh, astounding.
0: Do you get to see Bob anymore? How's he doing?
1: I haven't seen him since my last PhD student graduated because he was on the committee. So that's probably... Uh, a little less than a year ago. Yeah. But he, does, uh, he sends myself and anyone he's ever worked with a Christmas email each year. And he okay. sort of tells us way more than we'd ever want to know about him and his family.
0: It's <laughs> so great. And you're right. You know, I hadn't thought about that because his name is on uh, some of these papers that you've done. You've done yes. some of your own work as well. And it's really good to have that as a basis. And I can tell you, Bob was ahead of his time. He worked very closely with Toro. I think, in developing that unit that they came along with. And, you know, he picked up on the water issue right away and, of course, worked very closely with Ronnie in the development of seashore Ballum. But, of course, as a soil scientist, uh, soil water guy, soil physicist, uh, dealing with uh, salty water and bad water, he was really a giant there. So, I guess let, let me put you on the carpet then. What's the best advice, and what's the direction he gave you for this? What is, is, I mean, he must have given you good advice not just to do it, but the way to do it. What was the real best advice you got and how to approach this?
1: Well, I think when, uh, I guess towards the tail end of his, his tenure here, uh, when we started to discuss trying to make correlations between uh, field conditions uh, and player injuries and really trying to, to get into that topic, he, he definitely told me it was going to be tough. It wasn't going to be received with uh, uh, a lot of excitement because the first thing that people think when you start to deal with uh, athletes and injuries and the field and how it plays into those injuries uh, is they, they just see lawsuits. So he, he said you really have to push the whole due diligence aspect of it that You know, we're trying to do uh, due diligence, uh, you know, to try and make these fields as safe as possible. They're never going to become completely safe, but we're trying to do the best we can to, to provide a good playing surface.
0: And one of the great things you've done in these publications that I think is the kind of thinking we're moving towards is visualizing those differences and determining how granular the readings have to be. Give me an example of of that. How, in your work that you've done, the spatial part of a sports field, a native soil sports field, for example, how tight do you have to take the data to get a good picture of how uniform and safe the field is?
1: Well, unfortunately, it has to be pretty tight, and that's really why we started to use uh, more mobile devices. You can use handheld devices. The correlations are very similar uh, the data that you get is very similar, but the amount of area that you have to cover uh, and the number of samples. So on a typical American football field, uh, you're looking at maybe 100 to 130 samples, depending upon uh, which variable you're trying to, uh, to gather data on, and again, that, that creates challenges with having to, to come up with the equipment and the expense to, to get the equipment or the service that you have to pay for in order to get that type of data. You need to take a lot of data, and, you know, that data is, is pretty tightly clustered. When you look back and compare that to um, the way that we performance test according to, you know, some of the ASTM practices, you know, it could be anywhere from six samples all the way up to maybe a dozen, uh, and they're spe- they're taking data in specific areas with sort of a known outcome. So we don't really have any preconceived ideas of where to take data. It's just a strategic spatial attempt at, at taking a uniform number of samples over a given area and then coming to a conclusion based off of that.
0: Were you surprised at the variability you found, uh, especially you looked a couple of times the difference between rainfall and, and irrigation? I thought that was pretty cool how you did the studies looking at, you know, both conditions. Were you surprised at the amount of variability you got on a flat surface?
1: Uh, yeah, because that's one of the other things that, that Dr. Caro was really uh, keen on, on sort of, you know, his original advice was that, you know, we were really concerned about how irrigation systems, uh, the distribution of the water on the surface, but we really never consider where the water goes when it starts to move into the soil. And I think that's where it was sort of that shock. Like, we don't really understand that, you know, soil compaction, localized dry spots, um, you know differences in subgrade and how all of that plays into you know what we've called the efficiency of the irrigation system. Um, so I think when we started measuring soil moisture and got away from just only looking at uh, surface distribution, uh, that we really kind of were surprised at at how variable uh, things were, uh, and then how that really plays into the rest of the system, whether it's roots. Uh, or various other plant and and soil parameters.
0: Was there any way you could use that data to alter your irrigation, or was it simply something you had to do from modifying the soil?
1: Uh, I think it's a combination of the two. There's some things that we would highlight uh, when we were measuring soil moisture that were simply uh, problems that were in the irrigation system, whether... Maybe it was a, a wrong nozzle type or maybe the head wasn't turning completely, a like 360, something like that, all the way down to uh, situations where it was simply uh, issues with heavy soil compaction, wear and traffic, or something like localized dry spot uh, that, that altered uh, where and how much of that water went through uh, the soil.
0: So it was a combination of both, and then you did some work and suggested that you could use this to target airification. Now, if that was the case, when when a lot of these ESTM methods call for 6 to 12 samples, I'm assuming they're saying, well, we'll do it in an American football field, for example. We'll do it between the hash marks and between the 20s. Uh, maybe a couple of random spots separate from that, or in a in a, in a soccer field, you would do goal mouths in the PK area, maybe in a diamond pattern up the middle, You suggested you could use it for airification targeting. Did you find that things got compacted in places you didn't expect?
1: Uh, Yeah, especially when you start to move out of professional sports and you get into uh, the collegiate ranks and you get into community sports fields because you never know the other alternative uses for the field. I I visited a high school last year. I was looking at their actual football field, and they – initially told me that the only thing that plays on the field uh, is the football team, but then during the conversation, they alluded to the fact that the lacrosse team played on the field, which is a completely different uh, wear pattern. The band practices on the field. They have some charity events that they do on the field and various other things, and you see different wear patterns. We can even pick up where the cheerleaders cheer on the field during uh, times. Once you start overlaying all these different wear patterns, then you start to to see things that aren't indicative of maybe like an American uh, football field, where most of the traffic is right up the center, you start to see other areas that you get some some wear and traffic, and it's just not what you you expected based off of the sport. That's the single sport that's played on it. Um, once you start to compound all these other things, yeah, the, the patterns aren't uh, you know typical.
0: Okay, and so would you tell an average community field user, and I know you've done some work on long-term spoon-time testing of the value of that and confirmed that what everybody thought is that that does more harm than good uh, sometimes, but in general, would you tell anybody anything different than just airify the whole field once a month, or did you think that... You know those cheerleaders would lead to you know the band members, or obviously the cross with a with a gold mouth in a different spot. Would you suggest more frequent airification in places that had heavier traffic?
1: Um, I think we really try to, especially on the community sports level, we try to uh, educate the field managers to pick up on you know where the traffic you know is occurring the most. So we we really try to encourage them to get out there during games. You know whether it's soccer or football or something else, and to to get a good handle of where they're getting a lot more wear and traffic, focus on some of those areas, and then maybe go around with a handheld clegg hammer or something like that that measures surface hardness, and just take some readings here and there. And they don't have to have a lot of high technology. You know, writing a couple things down and kind of monitoring them over time would allow them to sort of focus in on what we call site specific areas that they can. They don't have to, to airify the entire field. You know, they can site-specifically pick and choose where they want to airify. Um, and it's going to save a lot more time, and they can get to more fields, especially when you start dealing with some of these community sports fields that have acres and acres uh, of fields that they have to manage.
0: Okay. All right, Gerald, let's take a break. We'll get a message, and we'll come back and continue this conversation. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi.
2: Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com.
0: All right, Gerald, so we have been talking about sports fields a fair amount, and uh, I think it's fascinating because I can tell you most golf course superintendents, especially the listeners of this program, we're all a bunch of turf geeks anyway. We're watching the football games on Saturday and Sunday, you know, saying, oh, how's that field holding up? And and it's, I think most of us are sort of geeky about it, but I do want to pull you into golf and uh, challenge the last question when you would tell a sports turf manager, hey, Just focus these limited resources you have in these couple of areas when you airfy or even sand top dress and focus there. When you see a golf course superintendent or a golf course go out and hollow tine an entire fairway, process the plugs, top dress or whatever it is they're doing for days and days. Do you think that a site-specific approach might save them some time, number one? And number two, is there any evidence of people doing this and demonstrating that value?
1: Um, I think it kind of depends on what their objective is. I, I tend not to show up at golf courses and try to tell people that they're doing something <laughs> right or wrong. No, that's what I um, do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think superintendents, they, just like sports field managers, they know their facility better than anyone and they probably know where they have issues, maybe cross-traffic on some of their approaches with carts, Uh, you know, some of the areas where um, maybe they have the carts directed so they come on and off uh, a fairway at a specific clustered location that gets a lot of wear and compaction. I think a a lot of people do a good job of sort of site-specifically hitting those areas, maybe on top of doing a full fairway airification. But I do think, depending upon, again, what they're – what they're trying to achieve, if they took some data and that, that kind of goes hand in hand with some of the work we want to do in the future, maybe uh, attach some sensors to some airifiers so that while you're airifying, you get some data that tells you uh, what the compaction level is as you're airifying. And then, you know, the next time you have to go airifying, maybe you lay off some areas and maybe you go a little harder into some other areas.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm imagining that What you're describing about site-specific cultivation as we're talking about or site-specific compaction relief is not unlike site-specific fertilization or, or pesticide application that ultimately we're trying to be more precise with the practices that take time and energy to solve the problems where we need to solve them and not spend time doing things on other Parts of the golf course, and I'm gonna. So I'm gonna ask you again: I mean, Would you think maybe golf courses could cut back on the amount of cultivation that they're doing if they had this data?
1: Um, I think they could, especially with things like fairways, putting greens are completely different um, animal, but it, it may, you know, coincide with uh, the type of soil they have. Uh, you know, the native soil that they have in their fairways. Obviously, you know, most of the putting greens that are around are probably going to be sand-based or USGA-spec construction, um, which, you know, is a completely different setup than having a a push-up style scenario. Mm -hmm. But I I do think that they could, but it's kind of the old adage, again, going back to some of the information that that Bob Carroll provided me, is that people like to do things in that old comfortable area where they know (laughs) what the outcome is going to be. They tend to take less risks, mm-hmm. especially in, in turf where, you know, one slip-up could cost you maybe even your, your job. So I think a lot of people sometimes are a little afraid to back off and test the waters a little bit and maybe do more site-specific stuff. Uh, they tend to kind of do what's comfortable and, and what you know what's going to provide them with a known outcome.
0: Do you think or do you see anything on the horizon that indicates that there will be something, That's going to change their thinking on this, or you think it's just something that maybe when a generation replaces the existing generation of superintendents, it'll take a generation?
1: I think the budget constraints that most places have uh, that are being implemented now are, are kind of, you know, lending to that. You know, I, I follow Twitter a decent amount, and I see a lot of people that, that are concerned about, you know, lack of personnel. And I think one way that you can maybe help in that area is to cut back potentially uh, with some of your inputs, so you can leverage some of that money to maybe fill some more positions. I think a lot more people are liking the concept of being environmental stewards. Um, I think one of the ways that golf is really gaining some momentum for attracting people to play is that it's not just going out and playing golf, it's, it's sort of like these habitats for animals, uh, whether it's the Audubon Society or various other groups uh, that are kind of partnering uh, with the golf industry to provide sort of the scenic experience for people that are out on the golf course.
0: So when you look at, uh, let's go to hardness now. Let's talk about some of the data in particular. When you look at surface hardness on your athletic fields, you see how it varies. And we've talked already about the variety of reasons. And of course, we measure with safety in mind, right? We don't want an athlete, number one, if they hit their head on it as part of due diligence, that we make sure it's a certain hardness that we test Uh, And if they plant a cleat in it, that somehow it's not overly tractable or underly tractable where they're just going to completely slip or that they bite too hard and the energy uh, passes up into their body. And, of course, those are really clear things where, in many ways, I bet in sports, they'd rather have a uniformly bad surface (laughs) than – I mean, obviously, they always want a good surface – than the sort of hodgepodge they get – uh, when you have to plant your foot in different places. Let's talk about the athletic fields first. It's virtually impossible to have a completely uniform athletic field, even at the highest level, yes? I mean, University of Georgia plays on a natural grass field, yes? Uh, yes, we do. And that's a sand base field, yes? Yes. And when you do your spatial stuff on that field, how uniform is it?
1: Um, It's actually surprisingly pretty uniform, but that's <laughs> that has to do with the fact that we are willing to resurface The field at least once a year Uh that's definitely an area i'm trying to convince athletics that is not necessary Uh um, because you really have to restart the root system in general when you get down to community sports fields high school fields The uniformity is is definitely uh, not too good.
0: And that creates a safety problem, right? Can you talk for a minute about how the lack of uniformity leads to safety issues?
1: Yes, you you can look at it from different angles. So uh, with respect to soil moisture, it definitely creates an issue with variable rooting. Plenty of people watch sports on TV, football games, where, you know, randomly you start to see some fields that degrade. You know, you'll start to see chunks of turf that come up because there was some poor rooting. Uh, And a lot of that's not necessarily mismanagement on the turf manager's side, but it's, you know, potentially an issue with the variability, which could go back to the irrigation system or other things. Mm -hmm.
0: So when you compare what you see in athletics, Gerald, to the way a golf course is, and again, firmness is an interesting thing because, in fact, on a fairway perspective, let's just talk about fairways. We could talk about greens, but let's stick on fairways. On fairways... Most people want a pretty firm lie for the roll or for the ball to sit up pretty good. What is your feeling about any work you've done in measuring firmness across fairways? Is it more uniform in these cases?
1: Golf courses definitely present a different challenge because of the elevation changes. And we... Whenever we've done spatial work in golf, it's always been on fairways that have had some really good undulation and elevation, and we do that intentionally. Yeah, the, the thing about uh, surface hardness, though, with fairways is that we do equate that to potentially uh, issues with rooting depth. And when you start to look at golf and how much larger surface areas you have, when you start to have issues with rooting depth and and ununiform uh, rooting depth, you can start to have issues with survivability, okay. especially in the south and the transition zone. You know, Bermuda grasses that have variable rooting depths can definitely succumb to winter kill. We can have issues with spring dead spot or various other things. So, right. I think when you have too sur- too much of a surface hardness in in golf, you know, it's kind of a double edged sword. It can be good potentially for playability. But then at the same time, it may not be good um, for the agronomic conditions with respect to how the plants grow and potentially survive.
0: So in your experience, you see fairways where if they're really firm, they tend to have other issues. You wouldn't say you've seen a lot where, you know, they've got them firm and, and they're really healthy.
1: I've probably seen both. If you go back to the literature when we've all gone to turf school and they tell you when you cut a grass at one-eighth of an inch, you're probably not going to have more than an inch of a root system. But I've seen people pull cores and have eight inches. That's right. So, I mean, just because it's firm doesn't mean it's going to be bad. But if if it's firm enough, it can start to create issues with rooting depth. So I'm not going to say it. it's completely guaranteed that you're going to have issues with rooting, but it, it, it can be a problem down the road.
0: When you do your sports field work or your golf work, it's on warm and cool season, or is it mostly warm season?
1: Uh, so sports fields is predominantly Bermuda grass, uh, whether it's common for community sports fields or hybrids for uh, upper level. With golf, it, it is predominantly warm season grasses. It could be anything from Bermuda grass to zoysia grass here and there on some
0: seashore past paths, I'm going to ask you as we wrap up this segment, Gerald, and this is way off the topic of golf, but I'm curious, have you ever done any of these measurements on spatial analysis on synthetic turf? Uh, are, are synthetic turfs when the infill is uniform? And of course we've learned a lot about the infill aspect, the volume of infill. Uh, have you done any of this work on synthetic surfaces and are, are they more uniform than even sand-based natural grass surfaces?
1: So I would say this question is probably off the record. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've kind of done this in conjunction with Toro, and they've done it too. But the, uh, the mobile device that we have, if you take the times off the device and you put some times on there that are more worn and don't uh, have a point on them, you can actually tell the variability in the displacement of the crumb rubber. So we have actually done that on fields and the variability in the depth of the crumb rubber is pretty bad.
0: It's dramatic.
1: What it really tells you is that uh, you have to do a lot of grooming with different types of equipment that you don't see in regular turf management to try and make the crumb rubber more uniform, the displacement of that crumb rubber. And that doesn't seem to happen a lot, especially when it's touted as sort of, Uh, Being a uh, a surface that you don't have to manage.
0: So you're saying that what you're measuring in the in the the depth of this uh, infill is not obvious uh, to the naked eye, because obviously I see in goal mouths and lacrosse, especially here at Cornell. Uh, you can see the rubber move out. Same on base paths in baseball. Uh, it almost looks like after every game, you can see it. Is is some of the shifting happening in other places, uh, or is it much like a natural grass field that the uh, issues happen where the traffic happens?
1: Uh, some of it is in response to the traffic, but then some of it is also in response to some of the management. Uh, Irrigation systems are used quite a bit in synthetic uh, turf, especially when they're outdoors, simply to keep the temperature down. And when you have to irrigate that much and sometimes even over-irrigate or even have significant rainfall events, it'll actually move uh, the crumb rubber around quite a bit.
0: Very interesting. Listen, let's take another break, Gerald. When we come back, I want to pick up on the irrigation uh, issue. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back.
2: Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you. There and gone before you know it. Dryject. The only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit Dryjects.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center.
0: Okay, Jared. when we left, we were chatting about... Uh, irrigating, uh, and you mentioned irrigating sports fields and moving the rubber. I thought that's fascinating phenomenon that I think I wasn't most people probably weren't aware of. But I'm interested now in you know thinking about uh, environmental stewardship and the comment you made earlier that everybody's becoming uh, a little more environmentally responsible on the golf courses. I think for a variety of reasons they care about the environment and. Oftentimes it makes good economic sense. And so when we're talking about economics and good environmental stuff, obviously the use of water comes into play. So you can save money if you have to pay for water, if you can be better at it, and you can use less water, uh, which is always very good from an environmental perspective uh, when we're using especially potable water for golf. So how do you translate, you translated the hardness issue from sports to golf, and mentioned that the undulations are an issue. I would suspect on the fairways it's the same thing. Can you speak for a minute about the challenges in irrigating uh, undulating slope surfaces?
1: Yeah, I mean, irrigation on golf courses, we've actually done some work. Uh, we, We didn't publish it, but we did quite a few what we call irrigation audits on uh, golf course fairways obviously the challenges have to do a lot with the fact that you're dealing with undulating surfaces you're also usually dealing with larger heads that shoot further we've got a paper that we're in the process of trying to get out now that that really shows uh, how important um your soil moisture distribution is because it really it's highly correlated to every other thing that we measure in the system. I mean, it's really correlated to your rooting depth, your root mass. Um, It's really highly correlated to soil compaction uh, and various other things. So it's extremely important to get as much of a uniform application as you can. With that said, it is a lot easier to irrigate a flat surface than one that's undulating. When we do a lot of our uniformity tests, there's a lot more... That's put into how the system is operating, accounting for the wind, accounting for slopes, and really trying to uh, uh, to connect that with with some of the uh, airification practices to really make sure that that the water is getting in uh, in the soil. It, you know, in the areas that it's actually making contact with, and we're not getting a lot of uh, runoff issues.
0: I've seen some data from guys that have looked at this. Doug Soldat's played around with this as well. I don't think he's published it where, you know, he's got a sloped green and the distribution uniformity is 80%, just like the industry wants. And he looks at his soil moisture, and to no surprise, it's dry at the top and wetter at the bottom, and you've got this real non-uniform thing. So he goes and adjusts the sprinkles to 17% distribution uniformity, and the soil moisture becomes uh, cr- you know, much more uniform. Do you think that's pretty consistent with what you've seen, that you've seen those sort of dramatic differences in the actual application of water to get the soil moisture uniform?
1: Are you talking about uh, volumetric water percentage?
0: Yes, volumetric water percentage.
1: You're saying that if you're trying to keep the soil too moist, that the uniformity is a lot more variable? No. I guess I'm trying to figure out the question there.
0: Okay, so if I have a sloped sand green, right? I got a front to back, a back to front, like, you know, Donald Ross or somebody else would build. Mm-hmm. And I'm irrigating that surface, and my irrigation system is 80% uniform. Okay. I take the soil moisture measurements. And I find that it's dry at the top and wet at the bottom in a sand-based green. What Doug did in his thing, and, and I want to hear if this works for you as well, is he altered the uniformity application of water to 17%. Okay. And what he found was the actual soil moisture in that sand-based putting green slope front to back was more uniform, even though the application of the water was significantly less uniform. So there is the question. Can, do you see circumstances where uniform application of water is not a good thing and we should be using soil moisture, not catch cans?
1: Um, this is kind of a touchy subject with us, I guess, because uh, I don't want to discredit um, a uniformity test. Uh, we we do believe that basing it off of soil moisture, and I think when you look at the... A lot of the, the work from the guys that, that promote the POGO to everyone that uses the handheld uh, TDR probes and all that stuff, you know, they're basing everything off of soil moisture uh, simply because you know, when you look at putting greens and construction, if the subsurface is not you know, similar to the above-ground grade, that's creating a lot of issues with where the water's moving and um, where you may have dry areas, wet areas, I mean, we do a lot of work in my classes, and I teach my students how to do uniformity tests, and we can have some extremely crazy uh, uniformity, uh, you know, with respect to the soil moisture uh, that we're finding in the profile and what we're catching at the surface and still be within the um, quote-unquote, you know, area that you need to be in, whether it's 80% or even 90% uniformity. I I don't know if I've not seen... The same thing that you're saying, Doug has seen. Mm-hmm. But I, I do recommend that everything really has to be based off of the actual soil and moisture uh, volumetric water content. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a good to, to understand where the water is hitting because if your uniformity is really out of whack, that's probably going to contribute to having variability within the, mm-hmm. the soil uh, profile. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes there's no rhyme or reason as as to where the water goes. It's all about preferential flow. Right. And that can be affected by anything from uh, rooting depth, rooting mass, earthworm activity, airification practices, all that stuff. Perfect.
0: Listen, I want to change gears a little bit because one of the things we're ultimately talking about with all this sensing stuff is to be more precise and potentially even anticipate problems. And some of that is going to be related to... Not being able to take all this ground data all the time, whether it's collecting water or taking data with a mobile device, uh, a lot of it's going to be taken from the air by a drone or by a um, a satellite. I know you're doing some work with Dave McCall on this, uh, Professor McCall at Virginia Tech. You told me offline that you guys are teaching a seminar But before we get into that, and we're going to let you shamelessly promote people, sign up for that uh, at the National, at the Golf Industry Show. But before that, you've played around with NDVI. You've had a sense of this. All these things you're measuring with variable soil compaction, with variable soil moisture, with variable uh, hardness measurements. Can you see this from the air using NDVI or any other measurement, and do you see this as something really enhancing site-specific management?
1: First off, I definitely can't take credit for all the great stuff that Dave McCall is doing. Uh, he does a lot more drone work than I do. During the uh, the course of us using the precision sense here uh, at UGA, we sort of came up with the idea of working with a drone company To compare what the data that we were collecting with the handheld NDVI from just uh, a few feet off the ground to the data that we were getting from the NDVI uh, from the drone, which could be several hundred feet off the ground. We didn't really go into the data and get too crazy with it, but just from perusing through it, similar patterns do show up, but the data output is not exactly the same. Obviously, you're dealing with a distance from the device. To the plants mm-hmm. um, you're dealing with uh, other things that are going on whether it's you know rainfall or, or anything else that can be between that sensor and the plant uh, having some sort of impact whether you consider it negative or positive but uh, I think the thing that that we need to understand now is and, and I'm I, I like NDVI I think it does a good job of, of it, giving us an idea that something's wrong but it is very limited it really only tells you that something's wrong. It doesn't really tell you what, what's causing the problem. So I would say that's where Dave McCall is, is doing a good job where he's switched to doing things like water band index to try and indicate stress, specifically from drought, uh, looking at different wavelengths. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the next generation of this. But NDVI does give a good, quick indication that something's wrong, but not necessarily what's wrong. And you definitely need to do some ground truthing to figure out what the problem is.
0: And when you took the image on the ground, did you say it actually correlated with what the satellite was taking, or not?
1: With what the drone, there's some correlations. Um, I think we can we can correlate, um, have a higher correlation, a more positive correlation if we take into consideration other things. And that's kind of one of the things that we're doing now. We're taking a lot of these sensors that we're using uh, with the drones, and we are placing them in the greenhouse under controlled environment experiments and just taking data, yeah. masses amounts of data, uh, to sort of more or less teach some of these devices mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a learning scenario, I guess, yep. to be more precise at depicting stress.
0: And that is exactly what has to get done that I see Bill Kreiser working on, Uh, We're playing around with it a little bit with uh, Winfield and their geotech system and their satellite imagery. I'm sure Greensight and a lot of the, you know, the drone companies are playing around with this. But what you just described is the way it's going to get solved. You're just going to have to point that camera in front of something and let it take tons of data that it can crunch and then you tell it when it sees this, it's X. When it sees this, it's Y, and then it will continue to learn that stuff and inform us. So I'm going to wrap this up, Gerald. And I'm going to put you thought I put you on the spot. I think I put you on the spot a couple of times here in this conversation. I'm going to do it one more time. If we can get barely get people to adjust site specific management for taking data on the ground, how long do you think it's going to take for them to? integrate satellite imagery into their management decisions.
1: I think the drone aspect of things has taken off like crazy and I think that just has to do with the fact that, you know, our society is really big into things like video games and and you know, sort of the uh, the coolness of this stuff. The problem is is that most people are really just taking fancy pictures and there's definitely a disconnect there with how you take the data Um, how you analyze it, and then how you um, use the data to make decisions. I think until we get to a point where that time frame is quicker from data collection to management decision, until we have more companies or more devices that are at our disposal, until the price tag goes down on a lot of this stuff, um, it's going to be hard to get the masses to adopt this. And then you just have people that don't like technology, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the best superintendents I've ever met can literally take a knife, stick it in the green and tell you what the volumetric water content is and be within a half a percentage point. Um, and that's just because they're good at their job. But until some of those things are fixed, I think it's going to be tough a tough sell for a lot of people, um, especially when we haven't gotten to the point where we are able to show them how much money this is going to save You know, until we get to that point. Um, it, it's a hard sell.
0: And especially when they consider the amount of time it's going to take. But what's going to help them is your seminar with David McCall. Could you plug it for a second and tell everybody what you're going to talk about in San Diego?
1: Uh, we're going to kind of uh, uh, combo uh, drones uh, and site-specific management. Um, Dave does a lot of the drones, uh, a lot of, a lot more drone work than I do. Um, I'm, I've actually got a couple more things that are in the works with uh, trying to uh, tease out um, weeds uh, from uh, turfgrass systems, and then actually get to the point where we site-specifically spray with drones. Um, Dave does that uh, already uh, with respect to pathogens. So we've got a couple of projects that we're going we're gonna to present, everything from variable rates, uh, GIS um, sprayers, to some of the different uh, sensors that we're using, uh, whether they're attached to drones or attached to mobile devices, or you use them uh, handheld. Uh, but we're going to kind of cover um, all bases, and we're going to try to uh, to really show people, um, you know, if you're interested in a drone, uh, here's a basic setup, um, here's how much it's going to cost, here are the different sensors, here's how much they're going to cost, and sort of get um, uh, give people more information on, on how to utilize some of this technology and then how we've utilized it and, and maybe... Give them an idea of how they can get some of their um, managerial groups to buy into the technology and maybe foot the bill
0: and make their decision making a little bit smoother.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the whole thing with this is uh, we've always tried to push that we're not trying to take jobs away from people. We're trying to provide them with information that makes their jobs easier and more efficient. And I think that was the other pushback that we've always had with site specific management is people fear. A lot of these devices that they're going to show imperfections in their management techniques, they're going to show that maybe they're not a good manager, and that's not the point. Nobody is going to have a perfect system, whether it's golf or sports turf. But what we're trying to do is give them timely information that can help them improve their management skills and make a better system overall.
0: Gerald, thanks for taking the time to join me. What a great chat. You see how quick that went by?
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: (laughs) Gerald Henry from the University of Georgia, thank you for joining us on this episode of Frankly Speaking from the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes. I'm Frank Rossi.